Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. Did you catch the line at the end of the video there when he says, you bought into the lie thinking that everything was going to be easy when you said yes to me. But that's not how it works. Did you ever find yourself believing that lie that everything was going to be easy, that following Jesus was just going to be comfortable and an easy life? Well, if you've been tracking with our sermon series for these past few weeks, then you know that we have been talking about the cost of discipleship. That is the cost of following Jesus. Uh, And uh, we have seen that it is not easy Uh, that following Jesus actually does cost us something. And I think uh, that idea uh, has been a little bit surprising and maybe a little bit eye-opening for some of us. So uh, before we actually jump in uh, too far into our text today, uh, I thought it would be helpful, maybe we first address one question. uh, And that is, why does following Jesus cost us? Because maybe you're thinking, uh, yes, salvation is, is free, isn't it? Uh, you know, I read in, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that, that salvation is by grace, and grace is meant to be free. That's the whole point, right? So why are you now talking about a cost? Well, uh, let me answer, uh, give you two answers to that question. Uh, first of all, uh, you are absolutely right. Salvation is a free gift uh, that the cost for your sins to be forgiven, and uh, for you to have a restored relationship with God is a death. And that death was entirely paid by Christ on the cross. You know, that's why we sing, Jesus paid it all, right? And this morning, um, we, we sang about that, that you can't buy it, you can't earn it. The price has been fully paid, and so now a relationship with God is offered by grace as a free gift to anyone who would receive it. Okay. Having that relationship is absolutely free. But being in a relationship costs you a lot, right? Just ask anybody who's in a relationship. It costs you. Uh, As you come to love someone more and more, then you have to give up some things. You know, maybe at first it's just a few like bad habits or uh, maybe a little bit of independence, but then you soon find that to love someone means that you have to lay yourself down completely and and put that other person first. And so it it costs you a lot. So that's the first answer. The second answer to the question, why does following Jesus cost us, is because we live in a world that is not following Jesus, right? The world is still occupied by the enemies of God, Satan, sin, and death, Now, they are defeated enemies, but they are still very much present. And so as we are moving towards Christ, and the world is moving away from Christ, well, yeah, there's going to be a little bit of friction there. So so that's what we mean when we're talking about the cost of discipleship, uh, that it's, it's loving God, it's being in an exclusive relationship with God while we are living in a world that doesn't love God. It actually hates God, and so then it hates you by association, right? So does that make sense? That's what we're talking about here, the cost of discipleship. So we are going to look at two different passages in the Gospel of Luke. 
uh, where we find that Jesus deals with this idea of costly discipleship. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to Luke chapter 9. But first, as you're turning there, uh, I'm sure you already know by now that first we have to look at the context. Thank you. Well done. One person got it. All right, we're going to look at the context. So far uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' ministry has been going awesome, right? Uh, That people are flocking to Jesus by the thousands. He's doing healings, and he's casting out demons, and he's raising the dead, and he is preaching to massive crowds, right? And then he's feeding them. Uh, And he also then is sending out his 12 disciples on these little mission trips and then giving them the power to do these miracles. And so from their perspective, they're like, yeah, this is awesome, right? Excited to be a part of it. And then we get to chapter 9, verse 18, and Jesus is chatting with his disciples and he's like, hey, so what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And so then they're like, yeah, well, some people are saying John the Baptist or Elijah or maybe one of the Old Testament prophets who was raised from the dead. And then he asks them directly, who do you say that I am? And so Peter responds and he says, you are the Messiah. That is the the, uh, descendant of King David, whom the Old Testament prophets were all predicting would come. And so all the Jews were expecting this Messiah uh, to be this revolutionary king who was going to overthrow the the occupying Roman government and usher in God's glorious kingdom uh, on earth. And uh, so, uh, of course, the disciples are excited, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of it? That sounds great. Okay. But this moment right here in the Gospels is is a major turning point. Because from here on out, Jesus starts to kind of set them straight about the kind of Savior that he really is. He says, uh, yeah, so in effect, he's like, yeah, I am the Messiah, but I'm not the kind of Messiah that you are expecting. Actually, the way this is going to go is we're going to go down to Jerusalem and our very own Jewish leaders are going to conspire against me and I'm going to suffer and die. Now at the time, the disciples didn't really get it. It didn't fit their paradigm of who the Messiah was supposed to be because they didn't get the distinction between Jesus' two comings, okay? Uh, So yes, he will come as a conquering king who will have victory over all evil and usher in God's kingdom on earth, but not yet, right? That's for his second coming. So His first coming, he actually came as the suffering servant whom Isaiah says was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. But but it was through that suffering that he would then have victory over sin and death. So that's the kind of savior that he was at his first coming. All the miracles and the exorcisms and and that kind of stuff, that wasn't bringing in the fullness of the kingdom. That was just foretastes and and glimpses of that future kingdom in the present, all right? So you get that summary, okay? Present, hardship and suffering, future glory, later. But the disciples, they wanted the glory now. They they were expecting second coming Jesus now. And and so you can imagine their surprise when he says, not yet, uh, first, 
I have to suffer and die. And then this is where we come to our verses where he warns them. And it's not just going to be me, but also those who follow me. So let's go ahead and read from our two passages today from Luke chapter 9 and then 14. And then we're going to try and draw out some implications. So reading from the ESV, Luke 9, 23 to 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here today, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then flip the page over to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you... Desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, Oh, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, uh, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All right, so let's start with those two pictures there that Jesus gives of counting the cost. Okay, the, the first one is the builder. So anyone in the construction industry knows that the first thing that you do is you gather up all your costs, right? You, you write up a quotation so that then the customer can figure out if they have enough money to finish the job, okay? Uh, otherwise, you end up with a house that looks like this, that somebody got started and then they didn't have enough money to finish the job, right? I hope that's not your house. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, the point here is that you count the cost up front so that you know if you have enough to finish, right? The second illustration is a king preparing for battle. It's the same idea. He's going to count up all the soldiers in his army so that he can figure out uh, whether or not he has enough to win the battle. And if he doesn't, then he's going to go and, and send uh, and make peace in advance. Uh, so he's not going to go through with it. So the principle then in both of these pictures is to figure out in advance what it will cost you so that you can determine if you have what it takes to go through with it. And then if you don't, then don't even bother starting, all right? So related to following Jesus, before you jump in, you better know what it's going to cost you. Make sure you read all the terms and conditions, right? Before you check the little I agree box. We know you do that. Uh, then, then... And then you can decide whether or not you have what it takes to see it all the way through. Okay. So that brings us to, that brings up three questions then that we need to deal with this morning. The first is what is the cost then of following Jesus? The second, is it worth it? And third, 
Do I have what it takes? Okay, so that's where we're going. Uh, question number one, what is the cost of following Jesus? What do I have to give up in order to be in a relationship with Jesus? Okay, so we got a few answers to these, this question over the past few weeks from, from Paul Gunning, and uh, so hopefully you can catch those sermons online if you missed them. And, uh, but he was told us that maybe it'll cost you your reputation because people will mock and insult you for being a Christian, or, or maybe because Christianity, again, is going in the opposite direction as the world, then maybe you have to kind of speak against some ideas uh, and, and actions of, uh, of the world, kind of like John the Baptist did, uh, which may cost you a reputation, again, or in his case, his freedom. Um, or maybe like Stephen, standing up for Christ may even cost you your physical life. Our passage today gives us a few more costs to add to that list. Look at 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... You cannot be my disciple. Wow. Uh, that's some pretty strong language from Jesus there. I mean, like, you sure we're actually reading the right Bible here? You sure this isn't like the English Satanist version or something? You know, I'm pretty sure Jesus told us to love people, not to, to hate them. Well, first, yes, this, this is the real Bible. And, and so second, uh, I think Jesus is using such strong language here to, to seriously make his point. Okay, the word for hate, uh, this word for hate is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament uh, when it's talking about like polygamous marriages, okay, where one wife is loved more than another. So, uh, for example, saying that Jacob hated his wife Leah, it doesn't mean that he actually like detested and despised her, you know, like we think of that word. Uh, it actually just means that he loved Rachel more. So Leah was the less loved wife, okay. So here, Jesus is talking about priorities. You must put your relationship and your loyalty to Christ above that of your family. Love Jesus more than you love your family, which is exactly what Matthew's version says. He says, if you love your family more than me, then you are not worthy of me. Okay, so Jesus first, family second. So does that mean then that we should be like that, that guy who wanted to leave his wife and kids and go be a foreign missionary, serve Jesus? No, not at all. It's not about turning your back on your family to follow Jesus. You're commanded to love your wife in Ephesians chapter 5, 25, and commanded to, to take care of your family in 1 Timothy 5, 8. So, so actually what this means, you, you know, your love for Jesus should actually shape and kind of redefine how you love your family. But it's like we said, that being in a relationship costs you something, okay? When a man chooses a wife, he's giving up relationships with, with every other woman on the planet, okay? That's why when you say in your vows, you say forsaking all others, okay? Now, of course, you do have, you know, this brotherly, sisterly love for everyone, right? But that unique, intimate marriage love is for her alone. You love her more than you love all others, okay? So it's like that with us and Jesus. For example, following Jesus may cause division in family relationships. Luke 12, 52-53, Jesus says, For from now on, one house will be divided. There will be five divided, three against two, two against three. 
They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Why such division? Well, because some choose to follow Jesus, others do not. Matthew takes us to the next level. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my sake, for my name's sake. When a Muslim converts to Christianity, those who aren't killed are often excommunicated from their families. They're cut off, kicked out like they've never been born. Following Jesus literally costs them their families. Now, maybe that's true for some of you, but maybe not to that extent. But but what might standing up for Jesus, might it cost you some family relationships? What's going to happen if you say, no, I'm not going to go to the holy fire because I'm a Christian? What's going to happen if you, you know, turn down that alcoholic beverage while the rest of your fam is, is busy getting wasted? What would happen if you say, no, I'm not going to sleep with my cousin. No, I'm not going to do this shady business deal just because you're family. Or what if God does call you to go and take the gospel to a foreign place where there's people who've never heard the gospel before, far away from your extended family? What happens when your convictions to follow Christ go against your family? Where's your priority? Do you love Jesus more than you love your family? And notice what it said. This is not optional. It's not like an extra in the Christian life. Anyone who does not love me more than his family cannot be my disciple. To be a follower of Jesus necessarily means prioritizing Christ over your family. Now, while we're here, I just want us to observe that while following Jesus may cost uh, some of you family relationships, it also provides a new family, God's family. Right? There's lots of places throughout the New Testament where the church is described in familial terms. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. But check out Mark chapter 10. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything to follow you, right? They were willing to pay the cost. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So following Jesus may involve losing your family, but it also gives you a whole new family, right? One of those little foretastes of the the future kingdom. But maybe just another quick aside while we're here. Please look around you, people around you, and recognize that some of the people sitting next to you may have had to give up some family relationships or, or some friendships in order to follow Jesus. Are you being that family to them? That Muslim background believer who got excommunicated from their family, that person who had to to leave their friend group because they choose to follow Jesus, are you taking them in and saying, hey, don't worry, we got you. You've got a new family. How radical would it look 
in our congregation, if we actually treated each other like family, especially those who've had to pay that cost for following Jesus. Okay, uh, then back in Luke chapter 9, another cost of discipleship, Jesus says, is your very life. Verses 23 and 24. If anyone would come after me, he must uh, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then again in 1427, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, these days our picture of the cross is a little bit distorted, okay? For the original disciples hearing this, the, the cross wasn't this like cute little gold symbol that we put on a necklace or wear some earrings, right? The cross was a, was a heavy, rugged, splintery instrument of torture that criminals would carry out to the place where they would be executed. So carrying your cross meant that you're going to die. And we know now, those disciples didn't know at that point, that Jesus himself would go on to literally carry his cross to Golgotha and suffer and die. So that then kind of fills this saying with whole new meaning, right? So that uh, Jesus, just like Jesus suffered and died, then so too will his followers. Just like he told them at the Last Supper. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So if Jesus was persecuted and killed, then you can expect that his, his followers, that you will also be persecuted and maybe even die. Paul told Timothy the same thing. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're going to say, God, I love you and I want to be in relationship with you, then you're going to have to give up some things. It means saying, God, I love you more than an easy, pain-free, non-suffering life. And then every time a trial or a hardship or a persecution comes into your life, it's an opportunity for you to say, God, I love you more. So that is exactly what happened to each one of these apostles when they were martyred for their faith. And, and Christian history is filled with stories of people who love Jesus more than their very lives. It's still happening today. Last year alone, there was uh, nearly 6,000 Christians who were martyred for their faith. That's 16 Christians killed for their faith every day. What do you think? Would you be willing to die for Christ? Do you love Jesus more than your physical life? Now, we are very fortunate to live in a country with religious freedom, and you probably won't be asked to make that choice. But this idea goes a bit deeper than that. I was talking to a friend once about this whole idea of martyrdom, and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I would totally die for Christ, right? Hardcore Christianity, I'm tough, right? But obviously, having never been put in that situation, it's easy for me to say that now, you know, just like, like Peter did just before he denied Jesus three times. Um, but then my friend says to me, okay, so you're willing to die for Christ, but are you willing to live for him? 
Now that question kind of took me back at first because I mean, obviously I'm serving in ministry, okay? But think about that for a second. If you're willing to die for Christ, then yes, that is an incredible act of faith and loyalty. I don't want to take anything away from the weight of that. But, but that's a, that's a once-off thing, and then you're, well, with Christ. But to live for Christ, that means putting yourself to death every single day. Did you see that? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. That means every day denying myself the temporary pleasures of this world that my sinful nature just kind of longs to enjoy. The sin that is in me is trying to lead me in this direction towards sin. And I'm saying, no, I'm denying myself those sinful pleasures because I'm choosing to live like Jesus. So when those sinful desires are, are welling up in me, I attack it, I kill it, put it to death. Look, Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You kill it. You put it to death. Romans 8, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And it's not necessarily just sin, but it could be good things that just take priority in your relationship over, or in your life over Christ. That desire needs to be put to death so that every single day you wake up and you say, that old me that, that used to love the world, that's, that's dead to me. Today I'm going to live for Christ. I'm no longer going to do what I, that is in my sinful nature, want to do. I'm going to do what you, Jesus, want me to do. So that I can say like, like Paul says, that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. I put myself to death, and so now Christ is living out his life through me. And just an observation, that if that's the way that you live your life every day, then if that choice for martyrdom ever did come up for you, then it's probably not even choice at all. Then Jesus keeps going, uh, and he says, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So you can see that this is all about life. But notice he's using that word in, in two different ways. Before Christ, you think that this life, here and now in this world, you think that that is true life, that that's the good life. Okay, whether that's living for sinful pleasures or, again, like we said, just good things that end up taking priority over Christ. So you're busy trying to save your life, that is, clinging desperately to, to this life and to, to all the things of this world. But have you ever tried grabbing a, a handful of sand? And then it starts to kind of trickle through the gaps in your fingers. And, and then you just try, you try and squeeze harder. To, to try and keep a better grip of it, but then just more and more keeps slipping out. Similarly, the more tightly you try and grasp and cling on to this earthly life, then true life, that true, real, eternal quality of life will just slip through your fingers. Instead, Jesus is saying, no, the only way to true life is to give up your earthly life. 
You hand it over to the master. Say, say, here, Jesus, I'm handing my life over to you. You lead, you direct me as you will. I love how Jim Elliott put it, one of my favorite quotes. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. This life to gain that which he cannot lose. Eternal life. You want the true life that Jesus is offering? It'll cost you your very life. So then by the time we get to chapter 14, verse 33, are we really that surprised? Jesus says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's kind of a a bit of a catch-all, meaning that nothing in our lives should have priority over Jesus. We love him more than anything else in the whole world. The cost of following Jesus is everything. Absolute surrender. Which leads us to our next question. Is it worth it? Okay, so we've seen the price tag. We know that relationship with God is going to cost me my whole life, absolute surrender. That's really hard. That's asking a lot. Is it worth it? When I was moving up into secondary school, I was thinking about trying out for the basketball team. And uh, then I started hearing all these stories about what the basketball coach would make the players do uh, for their training. Okay, so for example, right next to the school, there was this great big parking garage, probably five, six layers, levels high. Uh, And so they would have to run uh, all the way up the ramps of this parking garage, all the way up to the top story, and then all the way back down again, over and over. Okay, and that was just the warm-up for practice. So hearing all these stories, 14-year-old me, I was like, ah, no thanks. (laughs) That... The cost involved in being a part of the team was, was not, it wasn't worth the gain for me to, to be part of the team. It was too hard. So, I mean, not even bother. Now imagine that there's a lot of people in that crowd following Jesus who uh, probably thought the same thing. They're like, no, you know, I'm just here for the miracles and the free food that you, you just start all this talk about crosses and and self-sacrifice you know that's really hard so they're like looking around for the exit I think it's important for us to to confront this idea just for a minute because I think there are also people today whose only interest in Jesus is for what they can get out of it that they want Jesus to keep them happy and healthy and comfortable and prosperous. And they, you know, they have no interest in first coming Jesus. Like the disciples, they want second coming Jesus today. They want to share in Christ's glory without sharing in Christ's sufferings. But if we can just compare that for a second, that is like sex outside of marriage. You want the benefits without the commitment. But that misses entirely the point. Sex is for the relationship, not the relationship for sex, okay? You don't get into a relationship for the sex. You shouldn't. You get into a relationship because you love that person, okay? And then the sexual intimacy serves and deepens that relationship. The point is the relationship, not the sex. So you you see these 
prosperity Christians actually get it all backwards because they are in love with the benefits and not with God himself. They want a life of no pain, no suffering, no poverty, no sickness. And yes, those are benefits of a relationship with God. And we will see that in the, in the fullness when Christ returns. But not yet. Right now, we still live in a world where Satan, sin, and death are very present. And we still live in these fleshly bodies that love sin. And so in the meantime, while we're waiting for Christ's return, we expect to struggle and to be persecuted and to, to die to myself every day. But I can endure those hard things because I'm looking forward to a great reward ahead. But if the reward that you're looking for is only money, physical health, career success, my friend, you are selling yourself way too short. You are being so short-sighted. Okay? Uh, and, and then the, the, those are just temporary pleasures of this world. Okay? And those things are passing away. So it's no wonder that, that you can't handle hardships of, of following Christ because they don't have a reward strong enough to carry them through those things. So when reality hits... And when the going gets tough, then they turn back. No, no thanks. It's too hard. Okay, but our text here warns us about the other side. That is the cost of not following Jesus. That's right, not following Jesus also has a cost. Look back in Luke 9.25, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul? In other words, what good does it do you if you gain everything that this world has to offer because that's what you're busy seeking, because that's what you think is the good life, but then in the end you end up losing your soul? Losing your soul. We're talking about eternal destiny here. Because look in verse 26. It says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So we're talking about the second coming of Christ when he returns in glory, and all mankind will be judged to be, to be ashamed of Christ and his words. Uh, it seems to involve denying Christ in the face of, of these persecutions and, and sufferings. When they're confronted with persecution, they're like, ah, Jesus? Nah, I don't belong to him. Right? They're ashamed of him. And so then it says Jesus will be ashamed of them. They don't have an advocate before the judgment seat of God. Jesus will say, nah, I don't know them. They don't belong to me. So that's your choice. If you want to love the world rather than loving Jesus, then it's going to cost you. You're going to have to give up some things. And what are you giving up in this scenario? Eternal life. You gain the temporary pleasures of this world, but it costs you eternal life. What a foolish transaction. You know they call us the, the instant generation. We are terrible at delayed gratification. We want the rewards now. We don't like to wait. Right? We like super fast internet. So, you know, if, you, if the video stops to buffer, even for just a second, you're like, ah, Right? We, we get streaming and movies on demand, okay? And I mean the classic, the microwave, okay? We don't like to wait. We want our rewards now. 
And that's exactly what's happening here, that they want the rewards now. So they settle for the temporary pleasures of this world rather than endure the hardship in order to enjoy the immeasurable glory of God's kingdom. They gain the whole world, but they lose their soul. But following Jesus is just the opposite. Look at 9 verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now this verse can be a little confusing because it sounds like Jesus thinks that he's going to return during the lifetime of the disciples, right, before they die. Okay, but we know that that didn't happen. So uh, is Jesus mistaken here? No. We need to look at the context. The word but shows us that this is a contrast to the previous verses. So the person who gains the whole world and is ashamed of Jesus ends up losing their soul, that is eternal death. In contrast, some of you here, okay, that is those disciples who do deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. They don't taste death. Instead, they are welcomed into the kingdom of God. Okay, so if the consequences for the other person have to deal with eternal death, and it only makes sense that, that the consequences for this person have to deal with, here it's talking about eternal death. So he's not saying that, that the disciples will stay physically alive until Christ returns. Rather, he's saying that they will give up the world and they will save their souls. So yes, being in a relationship with Jesus means giving up some things. It means putting him first before anything else in this world. And that's going to mean some hardship and some suffering, naturally. Again, we live in a world that hates God. But that is a small price to pay for eternal life. Now listen, okay, this is my favorite part. When I say eternal life, don't just sell yourself short thinking, uh, living forever in heaven after you die. Okay, that is a fraction of the reward. Right? That's just one of the benefits of the relationship. Let's go back to this marriage illustration. We said that being in a relationship is costly, that you have to give up some things. Why are couples willing to give up those things? What is the reward that is worth the sacrifice? Okay, It's not the, the sex or it's not the, you know, the money if you marry a rich person or the, the citizenship if you marry a local or or the food if you marry a good cook. Or, those, are, those are the benefits. Like Those are all side benefits. The reward that is worth giving up everything for is the relationship itself. Okay, why are you marrying that person? Well, because I love him or her. And, and I want to spend my entire life with that person. That person and being in a relationship with them, and spending an entire lifetime with them, that is the reward. So when I say eternal life, I'm not just talking about eternal duration of life, as if a living forever in heaven when you die, okay? I'm talking about eternal quality of life. That is, living in relationship with God. In John chapter 17, verse 3, that's exactly how Jesus defines eternal life. Knowing God. So just like marriage then is the fulfillment of your relationship, it's bringing it to its fullness, so too when Christ returns, right, second coming Jesus, 
that, that he's gonna, that's, that's bringing God in his fullness. So Revelation even calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bride of Christ. So that will then include no sin and no death, which is why it's everlasting life, because there's no sin or death to end it. But that's just a side benefit. The real reward is experiencing God in all of his fullness. So then choosing God now, we get little glimpses or foretastes of that life, but then it will be in all of its fullness. That's the eternal quality of life that is, that is what we're talking about here. Life in relationship with God. That is the real good life. That's the reward worth giving up everything for. If you ask any happily married person here in this room, for as hard as marriage is and for all the sacrifices that you've had to make, is it really worth it to be in a relationship with your spouse? And what are they going to say? I wouldn't trade it for the world. That relationship is far more valuable and more enjoyable and more rewarding than anything that this world has to offer. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 13, 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then he covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and he sold all that he had and bought it. Being in relationship with God, being part of that kingdom, is worth giving up everything for. This is exactly the Apostle Paul's experience. Look what he writes in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul considered everything as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. He gave it all up because knowing Christ was far more valuable than anything else. So he was willing to pay the cost, the cost to share in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, in order that he might receive that reward, resurrection, life with Christ. Then again, he writes in Romans 8, 17 and 18, and if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That is, that we will also receive that future inheritance of the kingdom, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then I love this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That future inheritance is so much better than any amount of suffering that we have to endure here in this life. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I love it. He calls our our present sufferings light and momentary afflictions. Not because they feel light, they certainly don't, but in comparison. And and that they are, are transient, that is, that they're fleeting, they're temporary, they're passing away. But that very hardship then is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Therefore, he says, do not lose heart. Don't give up because it's too hard. Press on. Endure because it's worth it. Okay, last question, which is really just our application. You know the cost. You know the reward. Do you have what it takes? Like the builder or the king with his army, do you have enough to see it through? Do you have the courage the loyalty, the commitment to endure the hardships and the sufferings of following Jesus. Now, this is not just a given because you're sitting in church. There's a lot of people who started out following Jesus enthusiastically, and then they turned back because it got too hard. All right, this was 14-year-old me playing basketball or, or not playing basketball. At first, I thought it would be great, but then... You know, I saw how hard it was going to be, and so I was like, nah, no thanks. Fortunately, throughout my high school years, I toughened up a bit uh, when it comes to exercise, and so that by grade 12, I was willing to endure the hard work and the conditioning and the training that it was going to take to be part of the basketball team. Okay, now, at the time, I was only on the B team, because probably mostly because I didn't start when I was in grade 9, okay? But the A team that year... They made it all the way, and they were runners-up for the state championship. Okay? So because of I was willing to go through that hardship, I got to be part of something amazing because I was willing to endure the cost. Okay, maybe, maybe a better way to phrase this question is to say, are you so captivated by having a relationship with God that you wouldn't trade it for the entire world? Is your appetite for eternal life with God so strong that nothing in this world can satisfy you anymore? You've lost your taste for it. That's what's going to help you endure to the end. Maybe you're thinking, you know, Mike, uh, that's not what I signed up for. I'm just here for the blessings and the miracles and the free coffee then I'm telling you, you are selling yourself so far short. The real reward is God himself. And the more that you're trying to gain the whole world, then the more real life is just going to slip right through your fingers. Or maybe you call yourself a Christian, and when you're really honest with yourself, you actually haven't surrendered your life completely to Christ. You're busy trying to to cling to different parts of your life. Or maybe you're the one who has been ashamed of of Christ and his words. There's good news. Redemption is possible. 
After Peter denied Jesus three times, he repented. He reaffirmed his love for Christ and he was restored. And he eventually did go on to become one of the chief spokespeople for the gospel and, and gave his life as a martyr for Christ. Redemption is possible. Now is the time to say, Jesus, I'm done trying to cling to my life. I give it over to you. But remember, it's not a once-off decision. It's to be a daily discipline of choosing to die to yourself every single day. Live for Christ. Or maybe you are still considering following Jesus and you hear this and you're like, shoo, that sounds hard. Yeah, it is. I'm not going to lie. I mean, but weigh your options here. Okay? Uh, a lifetime of death, but eternal life. Or a lifetime of temporary pleasures of this world and eternal death. It may be hard, but I, for one, the Apostle Paul, Christians throughout history, many people in this very room will reassure you it's worth it. Or maybe you've been listening and you're like, yeah, Mike, I've been trying. This is really hard. It's wearing me out. Trying to put myself to death every day. Well, for you, hopefully I can be like that spiritual trainer. You know, the one who's standing next to you during the workout and, and encouraging you and saying, yes, it might be uncomfortable. It might be hard, but press on, endure, because it's worth it. These present sufferings are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. So do not lose heart. Okay, as I pray for us now, I want you to pray in your heart. Don't let this moment pass you by without doing the business that you need to do with God. Okay, coffee will be there, your friends will be there, but I want to encourage you to stay here in this room, sit, talk to God for as long as you need uh, when we close. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much that you sent your son to be willing to become a man and endure all the hardships and the sufferings of being a human and, and being despised and rejected and enduring the cross so that you could provide eternal life for us. Thank you so much for that great love. I pray for each of us here in this room, as we've been saying, this Christian life, this following Christ is hard because so we have to give up some things. Father, I pray that you would you just stir in our hearts a, a passion for you, a love for you that cannot be satisfied by anything else. Father, I pray that you would give us the endurance, the perseverance through this, this time of, of suffering in the meantime while we're waiting for, for Christ and while we're waiting for you in your fullness. Father, give us joyous glimpses of you in our life. Give us those foretastes of heaven that can help carry us through. Father, thank you so much for, for your love for us that we can be a part of relationship with you. In your name, amen. 
This is Rico Vecca, and I am also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today, and it is my hope that you will join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast. <laughs>